For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, from Nogales, reactions to this week's announcement about U.S. immigration policy. The Pima County Public Library celebrates five years of the Book Bike program. Pianist George Winston visits Tucson for a charitable cause. And why there is more to the University of Arizona clock chimes than meets the ear. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. Earlier this week, President Donald Trump signed executive orders that propose to improve border security, build a wall, and cut funding to sanctuary cities. AZPM reporter Nancy Montoya visited the border to find out how the news was received by the people living and working there. She joins me now to talk about what she heard. It's mostly a mixed bag. Um, I think that most of the people who live and work along the border knew these uh, executive orders were coming. They were prepared for them. However, they were still put off by them. We met with two border leaders, Mayor Doyle, who is the mayor of Nogales. The other is Verlin Jose, who is the vice chairman of the Tono Autumn Nation. Both these men and their uh, constituents are going to be impacted greatly by the border wall. What is their largest concern going into this next phase? Well, I think there's two. Nogales cares about trade. They care about jobs. They care about tourism. Very busy port. Mariposa Port is the busiest port in Arizona. So it's trade, it's money, it's jobs. But on the Tohono Autumn side, it's about the environment. It's about tradition. It's about respect for their their culture and their way of life. So while they have two diametrically opposed reasons for not wanting this wall, both are equal in terms of not wanting it and opposing it. What is it that makes the Tohono O'odham Nation land more vulnerable to this plan to build the border wall? Well, the Tono O'odham Nation actually uh, is on both sides of the border, partially on the Mexico side and partially on the U.S. side. And what separates them is a offense, basically, but not a wall. It's still a place where they can go back and forth. They have uh, family they visit. They have traditional uh, ceremonies that they engage in. So they need this easy access back and forth. Now, they have been restricted to a great extent. There's only one or two gates where they can cross through, but still it's it's relatively easy to get back and forth. It's also relatively easy for the drug cartels to get through. And that's been a huge problem. Lots of drug trafficking, lots of violence. So they're kind of stuck in a world where they want the freedom, but they're also suffering because there's easy access to the border there. Did you hear any reactions to the potential funding cuts to sanctuary cities? Lots of reaction. The city of Tucson is saying, whoa, we're not a sanctuary city. However, we are an immigrant-friendly city. So you can't put that label on us. South Tucson, however, has designated itself a sanctuary city. They're standing by the designation and by their attempts to protect refugees. 
On the other hand, there's a law enforcement uh, portion to this. The president, under his executive action, wants local law enforcement to quasi-serve as immigration officers. If you stop someone, you check their immigration status. If you find, regardless of whether you let them go or you write a speeding ticket, if you find that they possibly are not in this country legally, then you must uh, notify immigration officials. Police Chief Chris Magnus from Tucson Police Department has said, wait a minute, we can't do this. We need all our resources, all our money to do policing work. And it's not our job to be immigration officials. And they also have another reason for opposing this. They say that they have been working on community policing, which is to go into a community and have the community feel safe and secure and being able to talk to police about a crime either against them or a crime they've witnessed. If immigrants are, are really worried about their status, he thinks they will remain silent. And there's a whole group of people who could be victimized. Thank you, Nancy Montoya, for giving us this firsthand account. Listeners can find all of your reporting online at news.azpm.org. Sometime in the last five years, you may have seen a rather odd-looking three-wheeled bike with a cabinet mounted on the front being pedaled around Tucson. That would be one of the Pima County Public Library's Book Bikes, a program that makes the library more accessible by taking free books out into the community for people to take, borrow, and share. I visited the librarians and the bike on one of their regular monthly visits to the Armory Park Senior Center on South 5th Avenue. I am Karen Green. I am the librarian on the move, and one of my positions is that I ride the book bike. What was the mission statement five years ago when this project began? The plan for the book bike was to get out and about in the community, give away books to folks that needed books, and make sure that people know about the library. Where did the books come from? The books are donated, or they, um, sometimes the library has a book that's been past its prime. So is it your responsibility before you ride the bike out that you load it up with the appropriate kind of material for the group you're visiting? Yes, it is. So I have been coming to the Armory Park Senior Center for five years. I've gotten to know a lot of the folks here and their reading interests. So I make sure that I bring books, if we have them, that fit those reading interests. I think that's pretty interesting, actually. So tell us uh, what some of the seniors who come to this uh, center are into. How-to books, art books, which I have to say we don't always have art books available, uh, self-help, religion, cookbooks. We cannot have enough cookbooks. In fact, usually the first person that gets to the cookbooks, the first few people, they're gone. Um, very strong interest in cookbooks. Do people sometimes return reading material to you? Do they come back and say, I'm done with this? Yes, absolutely. We have some folks that bring back the books that they had gotten from the book bike, or if they have extra books at home that they're not reading anymore, they bring them as well. Or they could bring books to any library branch and say specifically they're for the book bike. This seems like a wonderfully old-fashioned program. I am a Luddite. My husband is a member of the band The Determined Luddites, so we are Luddites together. I am all about making things easy, doing things the easy way. There are some library systems that are bringing Wi-Fi hotspots and laptops, and they check out the books. Let's just give the books away. 
let's just make this easy. We can go anywhere. We don't have to worry about electricity or batteries or signals or anything. We're just giving you books. Okay, this is Macarena Molina, and I'm from Tucson. I come over here to the uh, Armory Center once a month, and I'm interested in books, I'm interested in cookbooks, anything like has to do with psychology or history. Do you have a uh, family? Do you have kids, uh, grandkids here in Tucson? Yes, I do. Do you ever share stuff from the book? I, like, for instance, today I just happened to notice you got a book on family card games. I will, especially my grandson. He likes things like that. He likes magic. So I'll share it with him. My name is Carrie Ann. Uh, I grew up in Tucson. As a little girl, I came here. My dad brought us here. I went to elementary school here. I went to high school. I did all the schooling I had here. Um, I met and married my husband, and we did travel. We didn't travel the world. We traveled the United States <laughs> and had a lot of fun. Today you stopped by the book bike, and what kind of stuff did you find? Um, I like uh, words. I did some poetry writing myself, and I like words, so I found a Merriam-Webster uh, paperback. Is that 2,000 new words in here? I'd like to see what they are. <laughs> <laughs> so let me ask you, if you want to look up a word, you're more likely to use this book than to, say, go online. Of course. I love books. <laughs> that computer is kind of like, I know that's 1947 we got the computer started, but ever since, and then I learned how to use a computer, I still really have my book. That's the most reliable thing to me. The computers can go down. When they go down, we lose everything. <laughs> but as long as you've got light, you've got your books. <laughs> I like my book, yes. Yeah. Introduce yourself for us, please. Okay, uh, yes, my name is Ben Matiea. I've been working for the library since uh, 1995. It's, it's been a really fun job. So I, I found this very interesting, though. I looked over here, and you've got this sort of uh, accordion folder system here with some reading glasses. I had no idea that this was something that the library provided. Tell me a little bit about this aspect. Um, they are donated from the Lions Club. They collect these reading glasses, and they provide them for people. We have them at the library, and right now we just have them on the book bike and at Main Library. And people come asking for reading glasses, and we have them to provide. As you mark five years of the book bike program, what is... The word from on high at the Pima County Public Library. Are they pleased with this program? Is it going to continue? Any chances for expansion? They're absolutely pleased. After five years, we've given away over 50,000 books, which is amazing, and it makes my heart <laughs> sing. I'm so pleased with that. So we have expanded. We did get a grant, a generous donation. So we now have three book bikes. Uh, around the system. So I'm not sure it's going to expand past that, but the way we expand is go to more events and go to more monthly visits. So for people who have never seen the book bike, it is a trike with two wheels in the front, right? And a big box, and it looks like we should have ice cream or paletas, <laughs> which many times people will yell as we're going by, ask if we do have that. <laughs> and you say, no, but you can read about them. <laughs> right. Um, any idea how many books you can carry on this thing? It's more than most people would imagine, I think. It is. You can carry about 200 to 250 pounds worth of books, and then just depending on did you bring a lot of hardbacks or paperbacks, so the numbers are going to vary. But I would say usually on our visit to the senior center, we probably give away about 50 to 75 books. And I see you've got your bicycle helmet and your water bottle here, so you're actually on this thing. You're actually making it happen. And yes. How is it to drive? It's a little funky. <laughs> it's a little, little loosey-goosey when you're riding it. It doesn't feel 
See, she's bringing books back. Um, it doesn't feel as, um, as heavy as you would think. I was a little bit nervous uh, that it was just going to be too heavy. I'm not the strongest bicyclist, but I can ride it just fine. It has three gears. There's not hills in Tucson. And uh, it's just a little loose when you're riding it. <laughs> okay. The Pima County Public Library is holding a bash in honor of the book bike and the Seed Library's fifth anniversary. There will be free books, children's story times, native plant gardening, and more from 2 to 4 p.m. on Saturday, February 4th at the Joel D. Valdez Main Library downtown. Pianist George Winston proudly carries on the musical tradition of his heroes, including Fats Waller, James Booker, and Vince Guaraldi. Also like them, Winston is a true American original. The creator of a style he calls rural folk piano, his multi-Grammy winning instrumental albums are constructed with a level of care that displays his warmth and humanity. George Winston will visit Tucson next week on February 2nd. I spoke with him while he was on tour in Malibu, California. I started listening to uh, music when I was 12. It was 1961, and there was a lot of instrumental hits on the radio, and I loved the instrumentals. They took me someplace, and I was quite content to play the radio or the record player. When I started buying records, I was maybe like 15. I always bought records that had organ in them, you know, whether it was the great jazz organist Jimmy Smith, or an instrumental band like The Ventures doing the hits. Yeah. I didn't I didn't prefer the hits. I, I liked instrumental versions of them, and particularly if there was organ. And then uh, I got the Doors record uh, when I was 18, just because they had an organist. They weren't known at the time. And I said, well, this is the greatest thing I've ever heard. I got to get an organ and play in a band sometimes. So the Doors first album was really what pulled me over. My previous favorite album had been Vince Guaraldi's Charlie Brown Christmas from 1965. <laughs> but that was piano. I loved the record, but it didn't spur me to play. And, you know, later, Vince Guaraldi became a ma major inspiration. And, um, in fact, the three composers that I've tried to play all their songs, not to be a completist, but just I love all the songs, Are the Doors, Professor Longhair from New Orleans, and Vince Guaraldi. Not all of them work. Uh, it just doesn't live and breathe sometimes on some pieces. If you had a chance to somehow talk with Fats Waller, is there a question that you would want to ask him? I would um, tell him that sometimes I can get that essence of the stride bass with subtlety and power at the same time that he got using the pedal, so the piano becomes kind of like a string bass. I know how he does it, but I can't get it all the time. And <laughs> I've heard it's rare, that, that sort of sound that he got. It's, it's effortless, powerful, and subtle at the same time. How do you do that, you know? I want to talk about your health, and I want to know how you're doing these days. And I want to know how you think that your experience with cancer has influenced your art. Yeah, I had mild dysplasia, which is uh, you need a bone marrow transplant. 
I would say having uh, more empathy. I've played a lot of hospitals, but, you know, being in one and seeing the other side, you can never have too much empathy, I think. Plus, uh, when I was seeing the doctor at City of Hope and staying close by, I had access to their piano all the time. So being able to go and uh, all those songs happen that are going to be on the next record, Spring Carousel, which would be a benefit record for City of Hope's cancer research also. Being there at that time and having access to the piano, it's kind of an extreme situation, but it's also, you know, wherever I am, it's going to um, kind of influence what I do musically and otherwise, especially musically. How are you doing now? How do you feel, George? Yeah, great. Uh, basically, it's almost like nothing ever happened. So wow. lucky it's the 21st century. How is it that you came to partner with the uh, food bank here in Tucson for this upcoming show? Well, since the mid-80s, we've been working with local food banks for concerts, uh, asking people to bring cans of food, and then the uh, local food bank gets the proceeds from the CD sales. So it's just a way of trying to contribute to the communities that invite me to play. And I figured that uh, if somebody's down on their luck, you can find some place to sleep, you can get water from a fountain, but where are you going to get legally get food? There's not many trees with things growing on them available, you know? I mean, where are you going to legally get food? So the food banks have been doing a great job for a long, long, long time. So uh, that's what I decided to kind of work with. It's uh, the Community Food Bank of Southern Arizona, and um, yeah, it just... Fantastic work they're doing, for sure. In my years as a DJ playing jazz music for people, I don't think I ever found an artist that could put a smile on people's faces as quickly as Vince Guaraldi. Uh, playing some of that Peanuts music, I would always get a phone call from someone saying, thanks, or gosh, I love that song, you know. There's something so ebullient about the music he composed for Peanuts, particularly, of course, the tune Linus and Lucy, which most people think of as the Charlie Brown theme, right? Sometimes I do workshops and I ask, what's the most loved song in the history of the planet? And a lot of people don't know the, the real name and the composer. <laughs> so what does it do for you to uh, get into the musical space that Vince Guaraldi created with those tunes? Well, I first heard Vince Guaraldi's music in 1962 when Cast Your Fate to the Wind was a hit. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. Um, then uh, later... I was a fan of animation, so December 1965, when I saw this cartoon of the Peanuts characters, a lot of people remember where they were when they first heard Linus and Lucy. It just went, oh, that piano. And I was into organ, not piano. <laughs> and I just went, that piano just drives me crazy, just like organ music. I, I didn't know the composer. I didn't know anything. And then the next day, I was at a record store looking for organ records, and there was a soundtrack up on the wall. And I went to it, and I went, oh, Vince Caroli, the Cast of Fate guy, he's the composer of this, so I got it and played it a million times and then studied them for decades and decades. And um, I'm working on a volume three uh, out probably 2018. George Winston will perform at the Burger Performing Arts Center in Tucson on Thursday, February 2nd at 7.30 p.m. The proceeds will benefit the Community Food Bank of Southern Arizona. Dan Cruz's voice is familiar to many listeners of AZPM. In his years working on the University of Arizona campus, Dan has noticed a unique musical acoustical event that takes place dozens of times every day. 
Dan asked some members of the U of A community whether they've noticed, and then invited a pair of experts to conduct a deeper investigation. It's a musical sound that's heard every quarter hour on hundreds of campuses, including the U of A. It's a familiar sound, but many people don't know of its musical and historical origins. The bell's ringing. Bum, 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 bum. You know, if I'm walking, I'll hear those bells. The bells in the main administration building? Well, it was the chimes for the clock. They tell us what time it is every uh, 15 minutes and on the hour. And then, you know, if you hear the right ring, you, oh, it's two o'clock or something like that. It's like my grandmother's chime at, um, she had an old uh, grandfather clock that had a similar chime. Yeah, it is my doorbell at home. I've never thought about that. <laughs> that series of chimes is called the Westminster Quarters. Matthew Mugman is a professor of musicology at the U of A Fred Fox School of Music. He shared some of the history of the chimes and their musical roots. The Westminster Quarters make up a pattern of notes that we hear all the time if we want to know what time it is. And it dates back to the late 18th century when in Cambridge, England, at Great St. Mary's Church, there was a new clock, but some musicians possibly a law professor with the help of a music professor and a music student, came up with this series of notes that we now hear to mark time all over the world. Now in 2016 at the University of Arizona, we have the same kinds of, the same pattern of notes that uh, we hear at Big Ben. First four notes that we hear, this is for 15 minutes. At 30 minutes, this is what we hear. And so what we get here at the, the hour is. You don't have to write a complicated melody to make a melody that people are going to listen to, understand, appreciate, or get something out of. And this is a great example of that. I can imagine that at different places, um, on the mall, you're going to get a very, very different impression of this, of this tune. Professor Matt Mugman is right. On the UA Mall, the Westminster Quarters sound distinctly different depending on just where you're standing. I asked Brad Story, a professor of speech, language, and hearing sciences, to help me understand it better. To do so, he conducted his own acoustical study. The auditory experience of hearing these bells is different depending on where you happen to be listening. The mall is set up beautifully to create a lot of reflections back and forth from the north side to the south side. We picked this particular spot because we're going to make a recording with the bell sound passing by our microphone and it's going to travel across the mall and it will reflect off of the, uh, the very flat surface of the Koffler building and come back and we'll also then record the, the reflection. Before we do the next recording, I'm going to uh, make a measurement of the distance from this recording over to the, the Koffler building. 
All right, so we, we counted um, 104 tiles on this sidewalk. I'm gonna log that in here, 104 feet. The other piece of information we need in order to know exactly what the speed of sound is today is the air temperature here at uh, 6.07 p.m. on July 20th, 2016 is 91 degrees Fahrenheit. After analyzing the data from his study on the mall, Professor Brad Story reflected on what he learned, and then he and musicology professor Matt Mugman spent some time comparing their historical and acoustical perspectives. Last week we made recordings on the, on the U of A mall of the, um, the chimes that go off uh, every quarter of an hour. I'm waiting now for uh, for Matt to come over from the music department. Then I'm going to show him some of the analyses that uh, I've done since our recording last week. Hi, Matt. Hey, Brad, how are you? Good story. Good, Good to meet see you. you. Good to see you. Well, come on in. I think we're going right. to show you some uh, data that we um, recorded last week. So this is a map of the U of A Mall. And um, the, the sound source is somewhere on top of the administration building. The effect that uh, people experience uh, the auditory effect, is that you get extra beats uh, that pop up depending, and they're different depending on where you happen to be standing. So the hypothesis is that it's coming from reflections off buildings. We like to think of music as, here's the score, this is, these are the notes, and we analyze them, but to think that it might have this kind of origin and that we're still, it's still being, you know, 200, more than 250 years later, it's still being reinvented just automatically by our environment, that these, these pitches are being reinvented. You write the music, but then you, you launch the music into whatever environment it happens right. to be, and it takes on the life of that context. I, I don't often go outside and think, oh, it's 5.55, I'm gonna go check out the Westminster Chimes, but it's, I, I think it's I think it's something I might start to do and just really say what this is part of all of our environment here. And if you think about uh, a typical undergraduate being here, let's just say fall and spring semester for four years, they're going to hear those somewhere between fifteen and twenty thousand times. Yeah. And so it will become it, it becomes a part of every um, graduates experience right. uh, at the U of A. <laughs> yeah, it's the soundtrack for their, for their right. experience. And, yes. And it's easy to take for granted. Right. So. That along with Bear Down Arizona. Right, yeah. exactly. <laughs> this, this is more heard than Bear Down Arizona. So Absolutely. Way more Certainly heard. Is. Yeah. Uh -huh. You can hear the Westminster Quarters and their unique echo patterns by listening at various spots on the U of A Mall. The chimes are heard every 15 minutes, 24 hours a day. For Arizona Spotlight, I'm Dan Cruz. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. You can also find our podcasts on iTunes. The show originates from the AZPM Radio Studio. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. Our executive producer is Peter Michaels. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore.